The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. You know, if you're here today and you have really no interest in the Christian faith, maybe you're here out of a sense of obligation to a friend or family member, Maybe you don't believe that you need the kind of community support that a church can offer during times of difficulty. Maybe you're not drawn to the intimacy of Christian friendship to be connected at the soul level. If you're not drawn to its ethics, maybe it's confusing this right and wrong of Christian morality, or you see no great value in the claims of its doctrines, I believe you would still be intrigued about the Christian faith if at least one claim was true that Jesus Christ was crucified and dead, was then raised from the dead for our salvation. And the reason I think that would intrigue you is because if that's true, then that means the last and ultimate enemy of human life, death, doesn't have any power over the people that follow that kind of risen Savior. You would at least be forced to reckon with the truthfulness of the claims of Jesus and the historical fact of His resurrection. The cross of Christianity is the most universally recognized religious symbol in the world. We've been looking the last few weeks at different kind of representations of the cross because it takes different shapes at times. This is called a budding cross. It is the typical Latin cross, which is just the vertical and horizontal beam. But at the end of each one of those beams, there's a flower bud, which represents that on the other side of the cross was resurrection life new life coming into the world through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Some of you have seen before a Canterbury cross. It's associated with Canterbury, England. The head of the Church of England is called the Archbishop of Canterbury. And this actually came from Irish missionaries to England and to France in the ninth century. And the Irish love to emphasize the symbol of the Trinity in the cross. And so you see at the ends of each one of the beams that there's a flaring out. So it almost takes a triangular shape in all four directions. And that represents for Celtic Christianity, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, oftentimes represented through a triangle. Three distinct persons and points, but yet one God. Here in our church, we have a Celtic cross, which also comes from Irish Christianity before the turn of the 10th century. And that represents the cross of Jesus, but it represents the eternal nature of God with a circle in the middle, a circle which has no beginning and no end. The God that we worship has no beginning and no end. For Christians, we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus not just as a historical event that happened under Pontius Pilate in the first century. For Christians, there's also a biblical and theological explanation, really a a hope that's anchored in that event. And that is that the cross was the means by which Jesus experienced our suffering and death as human beings and simultaneously, miraculously, initiated our reconciliation back to God. Well, the New Testament uses several dozen words and images to describe how Jesus does that. So if you ever had somebody ask you as a Christian, why do Christians worship Jesus was crucified? Why was he crucified? Why is that important to you? We could draw on a number of different metaphors or biblical words that describe that. What I want to suggest to you is that all of those biblical images break down into four primary categories. And my hope in studying for and promoting this series was that by teaching one word, representing each one of those four categories, that you could keep them in your back pocket. 
And the next time somebody asks you about your faith, or maybe you just need reassurance about the love of God in your life at a particular time, you can draw upon these four cross words. We began with the first word, receive. The cross is a sacrificial gift of God through Christ that we are to simply receive. Paul wrote in Romans 3, God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. The second word is the word recognize. And that is the cross provides sympathy and solidarity to be recognized. When we are hurting, we don't worship a Savior who just has no frame of reference for that. Jesus hurt just like we do. He experienced life just like we do. And that's something we should recognize because no other religious worldview makes that kind of claim. The author of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In week three, I add a third category, a crossword to us today, or for us today. And it comes from the book of Colossians. This is a first century map of the ancient Mediterranean. And you can see where the red star is located. That's modern day Turkey. It was called in the Bible Asia Minor or Galatia. And the city of Colossae is just a few miles inland off the Mediterranean Sea. It's only about 100 miles east of the city of Ephesus to which we get the book of Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul, depicted here, wrote a letter to the church at Colossae, not because he had founded the church and was going back to reestablish contact, Instead, Paul, who had never even visited there at the time of the letter, has heard a troubling new set of doctrines that have crept into the church. And Paul writes, as once the great persecutor of the faith is now the chief defender of the faith, and he writes to correct the message to those, church, those Christians in Colossae. And so, Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 2, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Now, what is this kind of strange, new, threatening message that's beginning to creep into the church? Well, scholars aren't precisely sure, but based on the language that we read about in the chapters of Galatians, we believe that there were three different philosophies that were essentially saying at the foundation the same thing. Jesus Christ is good, Jesus Christ should be followed, but here's something else that you need in order to make what you're practicing more perfect. And what the Apostle Paul wants to say to them is absolutely not. The moment that you make something else necessary in addition to Christ, then you're beginning to remove Him from the throne. Paul wants to say to those Christians, the danger is this philosophy gives Jesus an important place, but not the supreme place. It's not the most important thing with Christ at the center. It's something that's supposed to make Jesus even better. Now, I actually think that that temptation to think that way in the first century is still present in the 21st century world. Years ago, when I was beginning some of my theological education, on the first day of class in this new graduate program, they pulled all the new students into the big community room. They had coffee and they had donuts, and they were encouraging us to go to tables and sit with other small groups and then go through ice-breaking questions so we could get to know some of our fellow classmates. I found myself as a 27-year-old sitting at a table next to a person who was about my age pastoring a Baptist church outside of Nashville. 
Across from me, after he introduced himself, was a man who said, I'm actually a Sunni Muslim, but I'm here to learn about the Christian faith uh, just so I can become more well-rounded and perhaps use that in teaching about world religions in the future. Across from me was a man who said, well, I'm the old guy in the room. I taught um, law school for about 35 years, but I decided that I wanted to come and learn about Jesus because I was raised Jewish and then I became a Buddhist, so I'm a Jewish Buddhist, but I've always been interested in the ideas of Christianity, and so I wanted to come and, and learn a little bit more about what Christianity has to say. After that perspective, three very different backgrounds and perspectives, I said, I'm Nathan, I'm a Christian. Like, I didn't feel like I was interesting. I had nothing really to add uniquely to the conversation. And my friend, it was all very a warm, very polite conversation, very respectful. But my friend, the older gentleman across from me said, so you said you're just a Christian. Do you find that Christianity is sufficient for your questions? And I said, yeah, I do. I do. You mentioned that you're a Jewish Buddhist, but you're studying theology. How did you arrive at that conclusion? And he said, well, I've read Gandhi, I've read the Buddha, and several others, and they all say something kind of like, do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. And since Jesus had that same message, I thought I would come and learn about what He has to say. Friends, while I honor my friend's perspective and, and respect him, that's the kind of perspective that Paul is trying to undercut in this book of Colossians. You see, for Paul and for Christian history, Jesus is not someone who points to a larger truth. He is the truth. He's the embodiment of truth. And any time that we hear or see Jesus placed in a long line of other you know, wise sayings or philosophers or religious teachers, for Christians, our antenna ought to go up to say, wait a minute. Jesus Christ claimed to be God in human flesh who was crucified and resurrected for us. He is the embodiment of love and truth from God. I want to remind you that when you read about the great ten great persecutions in early Christianity beginning with Nero and going to the end of the fourth century, Christians in early Rome were never persecuted and um, put to death because they worshipped Jesus. That wasn't a problem. Rome had no problem with people who worshipped a variety of... They were a huge empire, the world's largest empire in the known world to that time. They were people that worshipped all kinds of things. The Romans had no problem with that. The problem that they had is that they would also not worship Caesar and the other Roman gods. They would not consider them as equals to. And for that reason, Christians came under great persecution. So with that as a backdrop, listen to what Paul says. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in Him who is the head of every ruler and authority. Now pause there just for a moment. Paul's about to demonstrate for us why Christ is singularly sufficient for Christian belief. It begins in verse 12. When you were buried with Him in baptism, you were also raised with Him through faith and the power of God who raised Him from the dead. 
And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this example, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of of them, triumphing over them in it. Paul is saying here, Jesus doesn't point us to the truth. Jesus is the truth. And if it's true that Jesus nailed our sins to the cross in His own body, and then graciously, incomprehensibly, when He's raised from the dead, shares that resurrection power with us, then the cross is not only a gift to be received in week one, It's not only solidarity and sympathy to be recognized in week two. The cross is a victory to be celebrated. And I want to drive this home by lifting up that phrase that was in bold in that last scripture slide. In chapter 2, verse 15, Paul uses perhaps the most dramatic language that he knows how to make that point that Jesus is the truth. In Colossians 2, 15, it said, and would you read this with me? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. If you have a different translation than the New Revised Standard Version here, that phrase triumphing over them may take a little bit different form in the English, but Paul's drawing on a very specific reference in the Roman military world. Paul uses a word, 3M, 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 Buyi. Elijah, I shouldn't just had you come up here and read it. Elijah's taking Greek at Beeson Divinity School. And you would have to come up here because I signed your paycheck. But I didn't do that. So I, I think it's 3M, Buyi. It's the Roman tradition of a general who has went away to tackle a conflict, to conquer a people. And they're successful. And they come home and Rome throws them up a great parade. Think about like a ticker tape parade at the end of World War II with all that confetti in New York City. Everybody's celebrating. Very similar. But in Rome, it was a very different situation. They would bring people that they took as prisoners of war and they would drag them through the streets. And oftentimes at the very end of that line would be the person who held the highest position of authority, a king or a ruler. They would lead them through this parade, carrying the spoils of war and prisoners of war, and then they would publicly execute the leader that they had captured. This is called the Arch of Titus. You can find it in Rome, Italy. Some of you may have been there to the Arch of Titus. That thing has been standing there since 81 A.D. And it was built in 81 A.D. because 11 years earlier, the Roman general Titus had had an extremely successful military campaign And if you were to zoom in on the relief, one of the depictions of the actual images, the spoils of Jerusalem relief, it actually depicts the Jewish rebellion which took place from 66 to 70 AD. The Jewish rebels revolted against Rome and tried to drive them out. And Titus was sent down to squash the rebellion. He burned Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, turning stone over stone. And notice here, If we were to zoom in on each one of these images, you would see there are people with their hands tied behind their backs. Those would be Jews who were taken from Jerusalem. And there in the center left part of the image, do you see a familiar shape? A candlelight structure for a menorah taken from the temple. This is an example of a person who's experiencing three ambuyi. It was a person who had had a great triumph and they're bringing the spoils of war and prisoners of war back 
to be celebrated in their home country. Now, with that in mind, think about what Paul is saying, what Jesus accomplished in verse 15. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Some translations don't say the word public example. They will say publicly shaming them, making a public embarrassment of them. What's Paul saying? On the cross of Jesus Christ, God took the very worst that the world could throw at Him by stretching out His arms and symbolically taking all of our sins into His own life. And then, by Him dying and being raised, what was actually happened was that all those powers, those forces of evil in a fallen world, were being disarmed publicly. And Jesus was then putting them on display. I wonder what went through the minds of the three men who were most responsible for having Jesus executed. The leaders in Jerusalem, King Herod, Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas the high priest. How in the world did they react when the three of them had conspired together to have Jesus put to death on Friday and late on Sunday morning word begins to move through the community? Roman soldiers begin to come back with a testimony that something happened, some angelic figures showed up. There was an earthquake. We, we passed out from fear, and when we woke up, the tomb was empty. The stone had been rolled away. We don't know what happened. Perhaps his disciples stole his body, but then the story begins to spread that over 500 people had personally witnessed Jesus walking around back from the dead. If I were King Herod or Pontius Pilate or Caiaphas, I would feel just a little bit humiliated that the final and worst thing that we could do to snuff this man out of history had been turned around and been shown to be completely powerless because of what God did on Easter. And friends, the promise of Paul here is not only that Jesus really showed them who was more powerful. The promise that Paul gives us is in Romans 8 verse 12. If the Spirit who raised Him from the dead, Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit that dwells in you. If that's true, then the cross is not just a gift to be received and sympathy and solidarity to be recognized. It is a victory to be celebrated. And not only in eternity, but even now. Because Jesus Christ did not promise in John chapter 10 that He came to bring life and life abundantly just so that we could experience that when we die. He wants to do so now because Jesus Christ did not come to make good people better. He came to make dead people alive. So think about your life for just a moment. Think about all the fears and concerns that dominate your thinking, that drive your actions, that make you anxious about the future. How in the world are we going to pay this bill? Will our children make good decisions? What's going to become of them? Am I actually contributing any impact for the good of the world? Am I living in a purposeful way in the world? I'm waiting on that test result. I don't have any idea what the doctor is going to say. I don't know if they're going to sell the company, and I don't know what we'll do 
if they sell it and I lose my job? Is my friend ever going to make it past that addiction that's stifling their life? You know, I'm supposed to retire in seven years and I don't think we've saved enough. Have we saved enough? Is our marriage going to make it for the distance? I'm not here to promise you that praying a prayer to accept Jesus is going to take all your troubles away in the world. That You'll never be faced with difficulty or questions. But what I am saying to you is that I believe that's true. I believe it's true, 100% literally true, that there is a source of power for people who look to Christ crucified and raised, a source of power that enables us to forgive other people when they hurt us, to deny temptation when it comes our way, to have hope that God awaits us in the future, and to be unafraid of death. Because through the cross and resurrection, the cross is a victory to be celebrated. About 14 or 15 years ago, at another church at another time, I met someone named Mark. Mark was about 15 years older than me, maybe 18 years older than me. And Mark was a loyal member and servant of the church, ushered, attended Bible studies, served the church. But Mark was, I'm using a different name, Mark was a, kind of a broken man. And he asked me after I'd been there for a few months if we could meet for coffee one day, and we did. And I had kind of wondered why he just carried this heaviness in him. It was almost like a furrowed brow, just a, a deep burden on his shoulders. And he told me that a couple of years before, that the life and family that he had had fallen apart, that his spouse had been unfaithful to him, had ran away, gotten married to someone else. He'd gone through a very painful divorce. He'd lost a family business in the process, and now he was left with his children wounded by these actions of their parent, their mother, and his heart broken and his livelihood threatened. And he said, I'm really struggling with feelings of resentment toward her. I can't, I'm having trouble getting past that. I know I should, I want to, I just haven't been able to do it. And so I tried to encourage him, I tried to pray for him, um, I affirmed his feelings of hurt, but I also, after a year or so, I said, you know, I really think you might enjoy this spiritual retreat that's called Walk to Emmaus. And I want to encourage you to consider that. It's a weekend retreat, men's retreat, you just go. I'm not going to tell you anything else about it, but I think it will be a blessing to you. I've gone and it's been a blessing to me. And so Mark went. And I could tell after that, he came back and said, you know, that I, gosh, I was surprised. I really feel like God met me there and God's doing something. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm almost about to start turning a corner. And Mark continued to go to Bible studies, continued to serve. And I could see kind of a general change in his demeanor and countenance over the next several years. Well, fast forward, and I became pastor of the church at Ross Bridge. And I'd been here just about four or five months. It was before our church, if some of you were with us in 2017, 2018, used to worship on the other end of the building. We were down there. It was one of the last Sundays down there. And I looked up one Sunday, and Mark was out there. And I was totally surprised to see him. He didn't tell me he was coming. He just surprised me. And after the service was over and I was greeting everyone, he, he hung around behind, and um, he just looked different. I could tell his whole countenance, he just was standing a little bit taller and had an easy smile, just a sense of peace on his face. Just everything about him just looked a little different than the man I'd first met over a decade before. And when I said, you look great, Mark. How are you doing? And he said, man, I really am doing great. 
You remember that walk to Emmaus I went on? I, I, that really kind of put me back on the right course. And I'm just so excited. My, my business has restarted. I'm doing better with it. And more, most importantly, you remember that those feelings of anger and bitterness toward my ex. Um, you know, by the grace of God, that just doesn't have any power in my life anymore. God's enabled me to really forgive and let go of that. And I actually pray for her now and pray God's blessing upon her. And then he said to me, I remember one of the last Easter sermons that you preached at your last church. You said something like, only God can take the pain of a good Friday and give to us instead the beauty of Easter. Well, I'm here to tell you that I and my family are living proof that that's true. About five, seven months later, Mike was diagnosed with stage four aggressive brain cancer. In 2019, he passed away. But if what we've read today is true, for Mark, his death was a victory. A victory. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, for Christians, death is a victory. And that victory that had began in his life that enabled him for, to forgive and get past that resentment has now made him impervious to pain forevermore in the wider eternal presence of God. Friends, if you're here and you don't believe Christianity's doctrinal truths, you're not interested in its ethics, you don't, are not you know, drawn to community or friendship or whatever, if that fundamental question that the cross has conquered death, if that's possible and true, then really the ultimate fears in all of our lives have been completely publicly humiliated and disarmed. And if you've never really considered whether or not it's worth placing your ultimate hope and your final hope in that proposition, oh, I pray that God's Spirit would help you do that now, today. God, for everyone who's here today, we look upon the cross with amazement and humility and gratitude. Help us to see, Lord, that even in the midst of a world that still has pain or death or strife and war, all the difficulties that we sometimes encounter, help us to believe that you've already taken away the potency of death. You have revealed that in your presence, it doesn't have any power. And if we place our faith in Christ, the same Spirit that raised Him on Easter morning is alive in us and help us can help us live victorious lives now and face eternity future without fear. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.